supreme exalted universal leader descendants of the kings and queens the overseer the overlord cream of the crop creme de la creme welcome to the second episode of off with her head a history podcast presented by your host and b that is me This is a historical podcast where on each episode, I'll explore a prominent noble figure of our past who lost their head or met their maker early in some other brutal fashion by way of execution. We'll dive into these people's lives and the roles they play in history and explore the circumstances leading up to their untimely demise with an intellectual rigor. My aim is to eliminate the stuffiness or elitism that can come with the territory here and make history more easily digestible as a storyteller. I know we can easily look at someone who's lived hundreds of years ago as a totally different beast, but that's not exactly the case. These were living, breathing people who had surprisingly similar tones to their lives that we still share today. I model my approach to research and academic material with empathy and skepticism. They may not seem like friends superficially, but they do go hand in hand. In this series, I'll primarily profile stories from medieval times through 16th century Tudor England up till the French Revolution, with some exceptional stories falling outside these perimeters. There are a lot of rolling heads and methods of torture to discuss within these 400 years or so. I took my sweet time to prep for this one, because in terms of male figures, this is probably my favorite historical figure, especially from Tudor England, which is where this episode takes place. I am talking about Sir Thomas More, humanist, lawyer, statesman, philosopher, revolutionary thinker, Lord Chancellor, author of Utopia, and at one point, King Henry VIII's closest intimate and right-hand man. I first came across the name Sir Thomas More when I was a preteen obsessed with Drew Barrymore and the 1998 film Ever After. In the film, she is seen reading Utopia, penned by our very own protagonist of this week's episode. In further preparation, I ordered Utopia from Amazon in 2022 and prepared to dive into this world for months, expecting to be immersed in this massive like 600-page manifesto. But it arrived and it's like 80 pages. Now this doesn't mean it's easy to decipher or makes it any less profound, but I was expecting this big stack of paper. I stress this because if any part of the story intrigues you, I implore you to explore his life and writings further. It's so rare to have so much accessible content on a 500 year old figure. So take full advantage, it's out there. This is a very divided character in history. Is he a mad, persecuting religious fanatic obsessed with burning heretics at the stake? Is he a deeply committed monk-like figure? Is he a stubborn martyr? Thomas More shared in the prejudices of his age and was complicit in practices, mostly with regard to religious belief, that we today would regard as morally abhorrent. But that's just to say that he lived in the early 16th century and not the early 21st century. There is a lot to unpack here, so without further ado, let's get right into it. Born in 1478 in London, son of a lawyer, John Moore, this was a time where occupation tended to follow family line. Thomas Moore hailed from a family who had a history of service to the crown and city guilds. He desired to enter public service from a very young age, and his life was molded around this path. He was always committed to surrendering his life for an act of religious principle, 
but seemingly always had an internal battle about what to do. Author and historian Tracy Borman writes in her book Henry VIII and the Men Who Made Him that his love of drama, wit, and culture was countered by an extraordinarily strict discipline and self-control, with a battle between flesh and the spirit already raging within him as a teenager. By the age of 18, it had become his custom to wear a hair shirt against his skin. Now you may be asking, what the hell is a hair shirt? A hair shirt is a shirt made of rough, uncomfortable cloth, which some religious people used to wear to punish themselves. Accountable noun. If you say that someone is wearing a hair shirt, you mean that they are trying to punish themselves to show they are sorry for something they have done. His unflinching piety would deepen into fanaticism for sure. But all the while, he maintained this now famous wit, which allowed him to easily converse with intellects, nobles, scholars, artists, and courtiers alike. His father, John, sent him to obtain an education in the city and more attended Oxford in 1492, studying Greek and law. But he left to study law seriously, and it was during his time at Lincoln's Inn that shaped him in so many ways, not just in a legal education. Here he was steeped in intellectual, cultural, and spiritual development, all elements that shaped his outlook in a profound way. Moore was called to the bar in 1501 and then became a full member of the profession of law. It was around this time that he met Erasmus. This was the beginning of one of his most important friendships and lasted for the duration of Moore's life. Erasmus once famously described Thomas Moore as a man omnium horatum, or as a man for all seasons, claiming he was always friendly and cheerful, who smiles easily and to speak frankly, disposed to be merry rather than serious or solemn. Only those close to Moore knew the strength of the convictions that were masked by this pleasant exterior. Erasmus and Moore worked on several important Latin translation texts. Meanwhile, Moore was feeling torn between pursuing a life of civil service or taking the path of a monk, but his sense of duty to serve his country overcame his desire for monasticism, and he entered Parliament in 1504. He also married for the first time, Jane Colt, a woman who fit the bill of his father's wishes, and she had given birth to three daughters, followed by a son, back to back to back to back. Thomas first met King Henry VIII when he was just a young boy, not yet on the throne. This would mark the start of a nearly four-decade relationship, and Moore's presence left an impact on the young and ambitious boy. In 1511, his wife Jane suddenly dies, and he takes a new wife, Alice, so his four children have a stepmother to look after them. It is also during this time where Moore began writing Utopia in 1515. Utopia covered such far-reaching topics as theories of punishment, state-controlled education, multi-religion societies, divorce, euthanasia, and women's rights, and the resulting display of learning and skill established Moore as a foremost humanist. Utopia also became the forerunner of a new literary genre, the utopian romance. Moore is also thought to have written History of King Richard III in Latin and in English between 1513 and 1518. The work is considered the first masterpiece of English historiography, that is, the study of history or the study of a particular historical subject. And despite remaining unfinished, 
influence subsequent historians, including one William Shakespeare and their writings heavily. I mean, we are all familiar with the infamous Richard III, right? William Shakespeare based his perspective entirely on Moore's writings from over 70 years earlier. The image of this tyrant in Richard III, a man who backstabs everyone, is hunched over like a ghoulish figure, wanting to sleep with his own niece, murdering his nephews, the princes in the tower. All the stuff modern-day Ricardians shudder at stemmed primarily from Shakespeare's play, which stemmed from Moore's musings. This is a great example of how the influence of Thomas More's life and work still impact our culture today. In 1518, Thomas More is appointed as a privy counselor to the young King Henry VIII. And after assisting the king in a response to reformer Martin Luther, he is elected Speaker of the Commons in 1523. His rise in Henry's favor would be rapid from here on out, as Moore was appointed Justice of the Peace for Middlesex and a member of the powerful Mercer's Guild. By the end of the year, he represented Westminster and Henry VIII's first parliament. His role in public affairs continued to expand at a rapid rate, and the following year he's appointed one of two undersheriffs for the City of London. These early promotions were a massive indication of the young king's favor for Moore, which would become even more obvious still in the years that followed. Moore's son-in-law, William Roper, claimed that Henry would summon Thomas Moore to his private apartment so they could debate on geometry, astronomy, and sometimes his global affairs. Other times, Moore would be invited to have dinner with the king and his queen Catherine of Aragon, and be merry with them. That's me doing quotations. However, Thomas admitted to William during these early years, around the first 10 years of his time in Henry's parliament, that he was hardly distinguished from the other men, but this sentiment would be short-lived given the rapid rise in the rankings. Enter Hans Holbein, the artist who is most notable for creating all of those portraits of Henry VIII during his reign and those around him. He was commissioned to paint more, which he completed in 1527. It went on to become one of his most famous and celebrated works. This is a big, big moment on the way up the chain, but one never stays at the top in Henry VIII's close circle for too long without falling. Now, in the late fall of 1529, there are some major changes in the court and amongst Parliament. Longtime Lord Chancellor Thomas Wolsey gets ousted from the role, and Wolsey's loss was Moore's major gain. He succeeds Wolsey as Lord Chancellor, becoming the 10th layman to hold that office, and receives the Great Seal at Henry's hands on the 25th of October, 1529. The letter that he writes his dear friend Erasmus right after receiving these honors would prove prescient. He writes, I am loyal to my king, as loyal as anyone on earth can be. My inability to approve of his divorce and to argue for it in public in no way detracts from the essential loyalty I feel for him, a loyalty that will keep me from ever saying a public word in opposition of him. Although this letter shows Moore's obvious commitment to the king, the strength of his opposition to Henry's ongoing divorce slash annulment debacle hints greatly at what is to become ever more apparent in the years ahead. But for now, Moore was higher in Henry's esteem than he ever had been. 
People noted during this period, including his son-in-law, William Roper, that they'd witnessed the intimate closeness between the two men, visiting at house and home, taking walks, and one witness description reflected that the two men walked the garden with the king holding his arm around Moore's neck, or often arm in arm, something I had never seen the king do with anyone other than his one-time closest ally, Cardinal Wolsey. Also during his tenure as Lord Chancellor, Moore's hours of office were increasingly lengthy, and he often attended his master after dinner, discussing affairs of the state with him well into the night. But these late-night meetings had another positive effect. They provided the king with a much more detailed analysis of state business, something Woolsey had not previously done. Thanks to Thomas More, Henry was at last starting to fulfill his proper kingly duties. Now to pause here and break this crucial part down for those who don't know, this great matter, all right, this great matter was the king's obsession with obtaining a divorce from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, in order to marry his Protestant love, Anne Boleyn. Since the church did not endorse divorce, Henry had to move heaven and earth, thus changing the course of history to this very day, by the way, in order to secure that separation so it could clear the way for his new bride and subsequent Protestant queen, Anne Boleyn. The act of succession that Parliament put into play here to address this very issue was very cut and dry in terms of what it demanded. Basically, that you would acknowledge the children born of Queen Anne Boleyn and Henry as the first rightful heirs, rather than marry one from his previous wife, Catherine of Aragon, would see Queen Anne as their true queen, and if anyone said, wrote, planned, or even thought about harming them or the said heirs, they'd be guilty of high treason with a traitor's death punishment. So signing this would recognize King Henry as above the Catholic Church, the Pope, even God, and would annul his first and rightful marriage to Catherine of Aragon, of whom most viewed her as the true queen. After all, this was England's queen for nearly 24 years. Their marriage had been 23 years, 11 months, and 12 days to be exact. Moore was a man deeply steeped in Catholicism in the church and was about as pious as it gets. There was just no way Moore would ever be encouraging these actions, yelling for it from the rooftops. No king way. Henry's very stance here was placing himself above Rome, the Pope, or God even, something Moore would never consider as religious as he was. Ironically enough, Moore was also a persecutor of heretics while Lord Chancellor from 1529 to 1532. The number of heretics burned at the stake under Moore's chancellorship is generally agreed to have been six, with three cases in which he was himself involved directly. But again, these actions reflected the convictions and culture of the 16th century. No doubt he wholeheartedly was convinced that an extermination of Protestants spreading heresy was totally warranted and approved upon by his God. Having known the king since he was a young boy, Moore had learned very well how to handle him. He reflected to his rival Thomas Cromwell during this period, offering advice of sorts in saying, you shall ever tell him what he ought to do, but never what he is able to do. For if a lion knew his own strength, hard were it for any man to rule him. 
While Henry VIII remains this massive figure in history, for me, it's the men who surrounded him that I find to be truly fascinating. They knew that their master had a deep brutality and rage to him, and they knew that their master was capable of destroying everything around him, so kept him in check by reminding him often of the limits of his power. Moore's lion analogy here also greatly encapsulates, or hits the bullseye, of the extreme danger in which Henry's men constantly lived. Their master was as volatile and deadly as a caged beast. The great shift here in relations, I'd like to say, is around this period and undoubtedly was prompted by this aforementioned great matter issue. So although he had held the highest offices in the kingdom since his first days as Lord Chancellor, four years earlier, approaching 1532, Moore was increasingly becoming isolated from political life. He was the first holder of that office to not be a de facto leader of the council, and his attendance at meetings was irregular at best. Now, of course, he's on a massive campaign against heresy with the old burning at the stake thing, which in defense did occupy a large chunk of his time, but there's no doubt that Morris' stance on the king's annulment, aka Great Matter, had prompted this isolation. Henry and he discussed the matter privately multiple times, but the two had reached a mutual understanding. Moore would not openly voice his criticism of the great matter, and the king would not pressure him to show public support for it. Nevertheless, Moore's refusal to help his royal master in the most pressing issue meant that he was ousted from the inner circle of counselors, all of whom were heavily occupied with the annulment proceedings. Instead, Moore allies himself with the church and focuses all his efforts and energy on persecuting those he believed to be heretics and spreading the word of the reform. It's not long, though, before Thomas More realizes he is indeed on borrowed time as acting Lord Chancellor and offers his resignation from the position on the 16th of May, 1532. But Thomas had no intention of retiring into obscurity and he would prove to be an even more troublesome opponent to the king's great matter issue as a private citizen than he ever had been while in public office. This is where things get interestingly messy. Now that Moore is free from the restricting shackles of being of service to the king and the court, he proceeds to publish a series of bitter attacks on Protestant doctrine. By doing this, he establishes himself as a powerful figurehead for all the religious fanatics who oppose the king's great matter and his reformation. And he's essentially the face of the opposing public who wants England to remain faithful to Catholicism, to the Pope, to Rome. So this is an absolutely fatal blow to Thomas More's relationship with King Henry VIII, who now has to view him as one of the greatest obstacles to his ambitions. It's all good, though, for others, as we've got Thomas Cromwell, the eventual king's right-hand man, for a while, waiting eagerly in the wings to swoop in. On January 25th, 1533, Henry finally marries Anne Boleyn in complete secrecy and under the help and arrangement of, you guessed it, Thomas Cromwell. Anne was certainly already pregnant by the time of this marriage union, and they needed to establish legitimacy as soon as possible, so the annulment paperwork would have to come later, as our queen in this story is already cooking one in the oven. 
Henry's new marriage placed a number of his men in a difficult position, but none more so than former closest confidant Thomas More. More had chosen not to attend the new Queen Anne's coronation, flat out refusing upon hearing the news that Henry's secret marriage to Anne had been declared valid. Henry was deeply offended, to say the least, by More's failure to present himself at the coronation, and from that day forward, there was a growing sense that the former favorite would not be allowed his free liberty long. But for the immediate time being, Henry was too preoccupied with his wife's pregnancy and this obsession over her birthing a male heir. Before long, she was in Greenwich preparing to give birth to the long-desired son she had promised to King Henry during their courtship. I think we all know the outcome here, and baby Elizabeth arrives, infuriating King Henry who cancels all of the pre-planned celebrations for his impending son's arrival. The act of succession, which Moore had never supported, obviously, was then drafted by Thomas Cromwell and passed through Parliament. This act basically cast aside Henry's first child, Mary, with Queen Catherine, and made room for the newly arrived infant, Princess Elizabeth. Seemingly left further and further out in the cold as the days, weeks, months progress, is our very own Thomas More. By February 1534, Henry turned decisively against Thomas by insisting that his name be included in a bill of attainder for conspiring with the so-called Maid of Kent. So for context, the Maid of Kent was a woman named Elizabeth Barton, and it was said that she had prophesied disaster if the king's marriage to Anne Boleyn went ahead. By most popular historical accounts, during this entire messy period, Moore is often portrayed as living quietly in seclusion, seeking only peace and solitude. While, yes, these were desires at his core ever since his resignation, he had still penned various texts, conjuring up a loathing for heretics. He was always careful to speak well and clear of the king. That is totally true. But this sure as hell was not enough to protect him from the royal wrath of our antagonist and old friend Henry. So when this Elizabeth Barton scandal breaks out, Henry has no hesitation in accusing Moore of complicity and having an involvement with it. King Henry had, guess who? Thomas Cromwell, write up two lists in the attainder. One against those who should be arrested and tried for high treason, and two, those who should be attained on the lesser concealment charge of treason. Moore's name was included in the latter of the two lists, and Henry was determined to make an example of his former right-hand man and close confidant, Thomas. Now, something to keep in mind here, as the years progress, our infamous King Henry VIII becomes more and more paranoid and suspicious of those around him. And at this point, he obsessively convinces himself that Moore was not only a part of this Barton scandal, but he was the divisor of her evil words. Ever the lawyer that he was, Moore asked for a formal hearing before the Lords upon hearing of these accusations. But Henry was not about to grant Moore the stage of a 1500s courtroom, so instead he said Moore would be tried by his own peers, including Cromwell, Bishop Cranmer, and the Duke of Norfolk. Despite his growing upset over Moore's failure to openly just comply, 
The king was also hoping that these men could persuade him to relent. He also knew that Moore's blessing of the marriage would make it easier for other subjects to accept Anne, as well as across the kingdom and within the general public. Something to remember here, that during this period, there is such a religious divide in the country, with Henry breaking away from the Catholic Church, igniting this huge reformation, placing himself above God, alienating the Catholics, etc., These actions that were done out of spite and love, anger and passion, these are the moments that literally shape our history. I love looking back with this hindsight, right, and being able to imagine how different things could be today. But I digress. So we're back to the early spring of 1534, and Moore has heard that Barton and five of her associates have been executed. He knows his afforded free time at home is tick, tick, ticking away. He confided into his son-in-law, William Roper, again during this period that he had crossed a line with Henry and that he could never go back again. Moore has always been heralded in historical reference as having unwavering principles and bravery, understandably so. Even though he was absolutely terrified of a traitor's death, he still admitted to feeling relieved that in spite of his fear of that, he was able to resist the overwhelming pressure to relent and give in. At one point, the Duke of Norfolk warns him in a conversation that if he continues to defy the king, it will mean death. Is that all, my lord? Moore responded. Then in good faith is there no more difference between your grace and me, but that I shall die today and you tomorrow. He went on to protest, for if a man answer one way, it will destroy the soul, and if he answer another, it will destroy the body. Thomas implies all this as much in a letter he writes to Cromwell in March of 1534. He writes that he resolves to do nothing further to provoke the king's ire, and goes on to write that as far as the king's marriage to Anne Boleyn is concerned, he would never murmur at it, nor dispute upon it, nor never did, nor will. He also knew that fellow lawyer Cromwell would understand that under English law, silence implied consent. (sighs) But silence, what a luxury that more would not be afforded for long. A month after that letter, this brings us to April 1534, he's invited to swear to the act of succession. The oath's breakdown here included a rejection of papal authority. So if he were to sign it, it's like a public rejection of all his former principles. And Thomas More is not a man shy of his principles. He told Bishop Cranmer that he would swear allegiance to both King Henry and Queen Anne, but could simply not sign. Of course, they take this recap back to Henry, who ain't playing any longer. Henry is explicit in saying Moore would have to put his signature on the act entirely or face the consequences. Now, it's interesting here that these two men's shared history, which spans four decades at this point, didn't entice the king to show a greater leniency than he would to a stranger. King Henry VIII expected absolute obedience from his men. He wouldn't hesitate to carry out the ultimate penalty for anyone who disobeyed. For the king, silence meant not consent, but opposition. And being in his position, he couldn't afford to tolerate it. And it's with that, that Henry orders Thomas More to be taken and imprisoned at the Tower of London on the 17th of April, 1534. This was followed shortly by Bishop Fisher, 
who had also refused to take the oath. During the early days of his imprisonment at the tower, Moore found solace in his writing. He penned numerous works, including the Dialogue of Comfort, which most describe as his greatest work. A narrative on human suffering, it was an expression of Moore's internal battle as he faced the increasingly certain prospect of death. All he had to do was recant. But despite his fear of suffering a traitor's death, he was still not prepared to forsake his principles. Moore's resistance had remained low-key because he himself had not wanted upset or a public cry-out in his name. Now here he was, holed up in the most notorious prison in the country. He had shifted from prominent figurehead to tragic hero. Thomas Cromwell paid more multiple visits at the tower in hopes of further persuading his rival to recant and save himself, to no avail. But to Moore, Cromwell seemed like the devil sent to tempt him, and he had no intention of conceding to this finicky heretic. The affection Cromwell had carried in during his visits was certainly not a two-way street. Throughout this long tower imprisonment, Moore continues to adhere to his policy of silence. He tells his family, I do nobody harm. I say no harm. I think no harm, but wish everybody good. And if this be not enough to keep a man alive in good faith, I long not to live. At this point, the whole country and kingdom are watching, all eyes on Moore, with only a full recantation between he and his freedom. A lot of what King Henry was feeling and experiencing is not recorded, sadly, but no doubt he desperately hoped for Thomas to come around. There was no doubt personal regret, too. Henry had adored, loved, and respected Moore since he was a young child, and even the king's massive upset and fury could not obliterate those internal feelings and lifelong memories of their deep companionship. But Henry also knew that if he cut him a favor— Excusing such a high-profile advocate of the old regime would have made a mockery of Henry's efforts to break free from the church and all of the actions taken in the past decade to move toward the Reformation. In November of 1534, later that same year, Parliament formally passed the Act of Supremacy, recognizing the king as supreme head of the Church of England, placing him above God, Rome, the Pope and it set the seal on Moore's doom. Now that the act was in effect, it placed even more pressure on Moore to accept the king's newfound status. Recant, recant, recant. Easy, right? Cromwell, who's continuously crawling up the royal ladder, employed new tactics. He recruited his deputy, Richard Rich, a gifted young lawyer, and future star of his own episode, by the way, to consult with the prisoners, in May 1535, Rich paid a visit to Bishop Fisher, tricking him into revealing his true thoughts on the Reformation and claiming it would be in total confidence. Fisher, of course, fell into this trap, being elderly and extremely trusting, and admitted Henry was not the supreme head of the church. With that, his fate was sealed with Rich's report back of this. It didn't even matter to the king that meanwhile in Rome, Pope Paul III had elevated Bishop Fisher to that of a cardinal, an act done in effort to deter the king from executing such a saintly recognized and secure religious figure. 
But this had the opposite effect. Upon hearing the news of his promotion, King Henry darkly quipped that he could give Fisher a red hat of his own, or else see he had nowhere to put it. He gave out the orders for Fisher's execution, and he was beheaded brutally on the 22nd of June. The ruthlessness of Henry's ways were growing by the day, and this would become increasingly evident as his dangerous reign progressed from this point forward. Fisher upon death was immediately proclaimed a martyr by the Catholic Church and all over Europe. The king's men and his orders had taken Fisher's head and placed it on a spike displayed over London Bridge alongside those heads of other convicted traitors. Cromwell again deployed Rich to visit Moore in the tower and again try his false tactic of confided and friendly conversation. But Moore knew better and could sum up Richard Rich in a nutshell from the moment he saw him, and he was not so easily drawn to share his private words. However, Rich falsely reported back, claiming Moore had also rejected the king's supremacy and was undoubtedly lying. But it was more than enough to have Moore indicted and brought to trial, which proceeded on the 1st of July, 1535. Rich stood as witness, cementing his lies and sealing Moore's fate once and for all. The trial did not allow Moore his right to defend himself and even speak, for the attorney general claimed that he was ready to convict Moore based on his silence, which he claimed was a sure token and demonstration of a corrupt and perverse nature. Only when the verdict was delivered did Moore break his silence. With his enemies looking on, he gave a forceful stance of the falsehood of the king's supremacy over the church. It was Moore's last stance, and he knew it. His sentence was the one he had long feared, that of a traitor's death. And a traitor's death, for those listeners who aren't familiar, was a pretty rough one. The convicted person would be dragged through the town center on a plank for all of the public to witness, and then taken to the execution floor, where publicly he would have his private parts cut off, his innards removed, whilst still being alive, and set on fire while still conscious. Then his head removed and spiked, and then the rest of the body quartered into four parts. For his part... Henry ended up commuting his sentence to a beheading, an act most say was taken by the king to show a final kindness. For his longtime friend and ally for the past 36 years. Moore remained ever so stoic and quiet about his feelings toward his former royal master. He had every reason to hate him, but he resisted any temptation to further speak out, assumedly for consideration of what would happen to his wife and children, all of whom easily had signed the act of succession, by the way. As with any prisoner sentenced to die under this regime, typically only positive words would be shared in a last-ditch attempt to spare their left-behind family of the horrors they could face if the prisoner spoke ill of the king. He had every power to strip the families of all their lands and monies, banish them from society, torture, and even execute them so most prisoners were wise to keep their final true thoughts quiet. Only a few days later, on July 6, 1535, Thomas More was led up the scaffold on Tower Hill. 
He appeared calm by all witness accounts and even retained his famous wit and humor by joking with the officer who assisted him onto the scaffold. I pray you, Master Lieutenant, see me up safe, and for my coming down, let me shift for myself. He then forgave and blessed his executioner. His last words were said to only be, I am the king's good servant, but God's first. And then Moore went quietly to his death, kneeling over the wooden block and placing his arms spread wide out to each side without hesitation. He was beheaded in one blow of an axe, dropping into the bin of hay below, and his head was taken and set on a spike on London Bridge, just as Fisher's had been, where they remained spiked as a reminder to anyone entering London. Do not ever cross the king. The rest of Thomas More's remains were interred in St. Peter ad Vincula, the tower chapel that houses the bones of other eminent victims of Henry's violent regime. Anxious about the public turning more into a martyr and revolting, the king attempted to keep the news of his execution at bay for as long as he could. He banned accounts of the execution from being published in England, but within weeks a French pamphlet had been drafted and was making the rounds. None of the measures Henry and his men took could prevent the absolute outrage that spread across Catholic Europe when the news of Moore's execution was revealed. Accounts of Moore's life soon filled the pages of prints across the continent, and even in England there was a massive underground market for writings and biographies written of Moore and his life's work. To summarize this, Moore was even more troublesome and harmful to Henry VIII in death than he had been in life. Again, there were no recorded accounts of Henry's reaction to Moore's death or the backlash, Even if he felt it, he could not express regret, as to do so would have been extremely undermining to his reform and marriage to Anne Boleyn. King Henry never flinched from those who crossed him, no matter how close. Arguably, aside from his wives, Thomas More had been his closest ally. There may have been an element of self-preservation in this attitude, though, as surely Henry would have been driven mad if he allowed tender feelings to creep in whenever he did away with a former friend. He was excellent at convincing himself of the valid justice of his actions. Thomas More was canonized, which is the process of being turned into a saint, by Pope Pius in 1935. More was canonized because of the bravery he showed during his imprisonment and death. He stood by what had been the belief of Englishmen for 1,000 years, that while Christ is head of the church in heaven, the visible head of the church on earth is the successor of St. Peter, the Pope of Rome, the same Pope who had sent St. Augustine and his monks to evangelize the Anglo-Saxon peoples in 597 AD. When all but one of the bishops caved into King Henry's threats and bullying, Moore stood firm along with his co-martyr and fellow Tower resident, Bishop John Fisher. By modern liberal standards, Moore wasn't perfect or politically correct, but he did show heroic virtue during his 15-month incarceration in the Tower of London. Pope John Paul II honored him by making him patron saint in October of 2000, stating, It can be said that he demonstrated in a singular way the value of a moral conscience, even if, 
In his actions against heretics, he reflected the limits of learned culture of his time. Perhaps no one gives better insight into who Sir Thomas More was than More himself. Being the writer and observer he was, he has left behind a legacy of his thoughts, convictions, and musings amongst his collected works. My personal favorite, and an excerpt that I think sums up more perfectly, was in one of his simplest Latin epigrams, and it reads, He is dreaming who thinks that in this life he is rich. When death awakens him, he sees at once how poor he is. I'll leave you with that. You've just heard Off With Her Head, a history podcast. Each episode is researched, written, and produced by Ann Bergstead. Yours truly, that's me. And you can find me on social media at The Hitchcock Brunette or at 20th Century Anne. If you have a favorite executed historical figure that you want profiled or for suggestions, comments, sponsorships, advertisements, etc., please feel free to email the show at offwitherheadhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Coming up this season, I'll be exploring the lives and stories of great figures and urban legends of our past, including the Princes in the Tower, Thomas Cromwell, Marie Antoinette, George Duke of Clarence, Mary Queen of Scots, and everyone's favorite feminist icon, Anne Boleyn. So please rate, review, and subscribe to receive notifications on when the next one drops. See you then!